Welcome to Strictly Money, where finance and your prosperity meet. I'm your host, Sajal Patel. The reprieve in Canadian home prices was short-lived. In fact, data recently shows that home prices ticked up in the third quarter. And in terms of affordability, mortgage payments as a percentage of income also rose. Now, there's a real debate as to whether the worst is over. On one hand, we're unlikely to see more higher rates. In fact, we should see them starting to trend down next year. But on the other hand, supply is just not keeping up with demand. Joining me with his advice and insights into housing and mortgages is David LaRock. David is the president of Integrated Mortgage Planners. He's also a mortgage broker, and he's here with me now. David, thanks so much for coming on Strictly Money. I always appreciate your time, not only because you're a darn good mortgage broker and you were my mortgage broker when I bought this home, but also because you have a pulse on on government policies and economic policies that really affect housing affordability and, and mortgages. So thanks again for coming on today. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Okay, so let, let's talk about home prices because I was looking at data. It looked like the prices were trending down for a bit and now it's ticking back up. What happened and, and what's your view on where prices go over the next couple of months? In the summer, interest rates were spiking. It seemed like every three or four days we saw more interest rate increases and buyers are reluctant to buy when interest rates are accelerating quickly because they don't want to buy and have rates surge higher and, and have everybody's worried about a housing bubble, the higher prices get. So rising interest rates definitely give buyers pause. And in the summer, the bond market narrative was that we were going to be higher for longer, that basically inflation was going to be stickier than expected, and that everybody was repricing that. And there had been a, there'd been a tug of war, there often is, between central bank messaging and what the bond market was pricing in. And in the summer, the central bankers were really winning. Their narrative was taking over and the bond market was pricing in a more hawkish view of where rates were headed. In other words, the bond market was pricing in expectations of a higher for longer interest rate scenario. And for as long as that was unfolding, um, the buyers were more and more cautious and that was starting to feed into prices. Now it's gone the other way. Inflation has come down. The inflation data is much more encouraging. A lot of the economic data points to a slowing in the economy, more so in Canada than in the U.S. But in the U.S. there are indications that rate hikes are increasing their bite as well. And interestingly, bond yields are now melting lower. And and that is causing rates to fall. And as soon as there's a pause in rates, remember back in January, all it took was the Bank of Canada saying we're going to pause from additional rate hikes to allow time for the hikes we've already made to, to impact the market. And the housing market kind of went nuts. It really surprised our policymakers. And the same thing is happening now. Bond yields are melting down. Rates are starting to fall. And as soon as that starts to happen, we're seeing a response in the housing market. Um, our housing market has been surprisingly resilient. I think the most obvious explanation for that is the fact that we have had record levels of immigration. We had more immigrants in Canada last year than they did in the United States. And for a country 10 times our size, that's pretty staggering. So again, we've got a real supply demand balance in Canada. And while we can slow market activity for a while, we can't seem to stop that momentum given the intense uh, disparity between supply and demand. 
Yeah. So we know that the Bank of Canada is going to meet. Um, I think most people are saying, look, uh, they're not going to hike and, and chances are the next move, it might be next year, but the next move is probably lower. But you don't think that's necessarily going to give anybody who's looking for a home relief. Well, uh, yes and no. If you want a variable rate, then you're going to have to wait till next year, probably before you see rate cuts. But the bond market, which is what fixed mortgage rates are priced on, is forward looking. So if the bond market thinks we're going to have rate cuts next year, and if it thinks rate cuts will materialize sooner than it had previously thought, and if it thinks we'll get more rate cuts, then that is reflected quickly in the bond market. And yields will fall as they are doing now and fixed mortgage rates will come down. So if you're in the market for mortgage today, the fact that the bond market is pricing in more rate uh, rate cuts to happen sooner next year and more rate cuts to materialize, that's going to we're going to see that flow through into fixed mortgage rates first. But ultimately, once you lock in your fixed rate, you're locked in for your full term. If you take a variable rate today, then you have to wait until the bank starts cutting. But every time it cuts, you immediately see that reflected at a lower rate. I say immediately within a week or two, you immediately see that benefit. Interestingly, Sajel, uh, the Bank of Canada just rolled out their announcement about 20 minutes before we hopped on this call. And uh, I made sure to check just briefly before we, uh, we joined on today. And they did hold as expected. And their policy rate language was more neutral than it has been previously in the past. They, they've said we're holding, but you know, kind of like a stern, stern warning from parents. They said, don't ever, don't anyone get carried away because there could well be more rate hikes coming. This time around, they were a bit more, more neutral. They said, we're, we're basically, we like where things are going. We think momentum's headed in the, in the right direction, but we will raise again if we need to. So not completely removing the prospect of rate hikes, but for all intents and purposes, the bond market thinks we're done. I, I agree with that assessment. And the question now is when are rate cuts going to materialize? And right now, people think that's a Q2 2024 story. Yeah, I think it'll be really interesting. I mean, like you said, I don't think it was a surprise that they held, especially when we look at some of the economic data. Are you concerned at all about the unemployment picture? Because we did see unemployment tick up and we know that you know job losses, it's a big factor when it comes to being able to pay those your mortgages. Absolutely. Yeah. Higher interest rates don't tend to have a big impact on default rates, but job losses sure do. And right now we're at an interesting point in the labor market because when we see a turning in the economic cycle, it doesn't all happen at the same time. First, the Bank of Canada raises rates. Then we start to see the overall economic momentum slow. We see that reflected in the GDP data. Only after those two things happen do we then see it feed into prices, as we're seeing now with inflation really starting to melt down. Well, not starting to melt down. We came from 8.1 down below 3% range, so it's been melting for a while. But core inflation is still up around 4%. So we've got a ways to go. But we are seeing steady downward momentum in inflation. And then the last piece is wages. Now, wages right now, wage growth is still around 5%. It came in at 4.8 last month. And that's probably going to run a little bit longer because not all wages have adjusted yet to higher prices. If you haven't seen a pay raise since the surge in inflation and you've fallen behind, you're losing purchasing power. So there has to be some catch up and um, and that it's going to take some time for that to occur. But we are starting to see signs of a weakening labor market. For example, we created 25,000 new jobs last month. That's actually a pretty good print overall. But we added 78,000 new people to the labor force. Again, we have record levels of immigration. So we're now adding workers faster than we're adding jobs to hire them. 
And when the bank ten is worried about the cost of labor, at one point, well, for an extended period, we were in a period of what's called excess demand for labor, which means there was too much demand for labor, not enough supply. And that's part of the reason why wages were rising at a much faster pace. If the bank wants to get inflation to 2%, they're not going to do it when wage growth is at 5%. Those two things have to converge. So again, last month and for the last couple of months, We've seen decent job creation, but we've seen more, we've grown the labor force faster than we've created new jobs to hire. Interestingly, since April, the unemployment is the, the unemployment rate has risen from 5% all the way up to 5.8%. That's a big increase. And typically, we only see an increase like that when the labor market is on the verge of, of weakening. That is a sign of weakness in the labor market, despite the fact that we still had job growth. But again, this will take time to play out. Right now, we're not seeing layoffs. What we're seeing is a slowdown in hiring, and hiring will first slow, new job creation will stall out, and then we'll start to see layoffs. We are seeing some layoffs. One of the uh, most noteworthy sectors uh, laying off right now is uh, financial services. That's considered a leading indicator of where the labor market is headed. Financial services are very sensitive to changes in economic momentum and to things like higher interest rates. And um, we are seeing uh, pretty steady monthly layoffs in financial services. So again, not happening just yet. Average wages are still at 4.8%. That's still too high. The bank can is still keeping an eye on that for sure. Uh, but all of the momentum suggests that the prerequisites are now in place for the labor market to soften, for wages to come down. And it, it gives the Bank of Canada hope that the 2% inflation target is not so far off. And that, by the way, is why the bond market is looking at Q2 in 2024 is the time when rate cuts should start to materialize. Because right now, the BOC has cranked rates up. The, the, its policy rate is up around 5%. Um, a lot of opinions on what the neutral rate is. That's basically the Bank of Canada's policy rate level that neither stimulates nor constricts the economy. Um, there's a lot of debate about what that number looks like, but um, it's the, the consensus believes the BOC's policy rate should be around 3%, uh, all else being equal, and the economy is in what we would call a normal balanced state. Uh, we would have to have inflation right around 2% to get there, but that suggests that at, at, a, at a policy rate level of 5% right now, there's a fair amount of air between where the policy rate level is and where it will likely settle to when things normalize. And that's what the bond market is trying to get the timing right on uh, at this point. David, let's can we talk about the mortgage cliff? It's been making headlines. I know Royal LePage came out and said something like 3 million Canadians are going to have to renew their mortgages over the next 18 months or so. What are you hearing? Are you seeing defaults? And, and what are your clients asking you about? Well, I'm not seeing defaults right now. Our default rates are always very low by comparison to other countries. And right now, I think they're at about 0.16 of a percent, which is about half of their long-term average and close to their record lows. So default rates right now are not a concern. There's certainly a lot of uh, uh, clickbait headlines suggesting that this is uh, going to be a problem, and we could debate whether or not that will materialize. Interestingly, Sage, right now, the people coming up for renewal are renewing rates that were at about 3% back in late 2018, and they're renewing into rates that today are closer to 55 or 6%. That is increasing their mortgage payments by about 30%. So people look at what's happened with rates and they say rates have tripled from their lows. So yeah, at one point, the lowest rates were below 2%. The highest rates were about 6%. So they say rates have tripled. That means my payment is going to triple. And I can tell you talking to borrowers on a daily basis, their, their response 
because sometimes they call me if they can't sleep at night. They're worried, you know, I'm a year away from renewal. What the heck are my payments going to be? How am I going to get through this? When I show them the numbers and actually give them the hard data, um, the universal response I've encountered thus far is relief because they always imagine that it's much worse than they uh, than it actually is. I'm not suggesting that this isn't bad news for borrowers and that higher mortgage payments aren't something that people are struggling to absorb. But a 30% increase in your payment in reality is a lot better than a tripling in your payment, which some fear. And again, part of the, the, the mortgage broker's job in this process is to educate their clients and make sure that they know what reality is. Because in many cases, it's not quite as bad as people fear. Um, and again, I'm, I'm very sympathetic to the fact that people are, are struggling with higher costs. But again, on a relative basis, if you just went by the clickbait headlines, you'd think the sky was falling and that uh, we'd all be uh, guarding our vegetable patches with rifles in a couple of years. And uh, we're not there yet. You know, you make the point. This is really about education. It's why, you know, you're you're here and, and why we're talking about this, because I think a lot of people do get caught up in the sensationalist sometimes. They are sensationalist headlines. David, we're going to take a quick break and hear from our sponsor and we'll continue this conversation. We'll be right back. Are you looking to enhance the level of cash flow from your investments? BMO ETFs has you covered with their Covered Call ETFs. These ETFs generate cash flow from two sources, the dividend yield from the underlying securities and the premium generated from selling the call options. BMO Covered Call ETFs strike a balance between generating cash flow and participating in the growth of rising markets with your experienced portfolio management team and effective strategy with over 10 years of history. BMO ETFs is the largest covered call ETF provider in Canada, covering 13 covered call ETFs across a range of strategies across regions, countries, and sectors. Visit BMOETFs.com to learn more. Please read the ETF facts or prospectus of the BMO ETFs before investing. Welcome back. I'm here with David LaRocque of Integrated Mortgage Planners. Um, David, I want to talk about the tighter lending standards, right? Because you and I have talked about this many, many times on previous shows. Certainly the stress test saved a lot of people. I think it, it certainly cushioned the blow. There was word that OSPI was re-looking at it again. What's, what's happened with that? And how do you think they're sort of reading the landscape? So OSPI does a biannual review of its policies, and there was speculation that it might look at tweaking the stress test. It didn't do that. And for good reason. If the Bank of Canada is raising rates to slow the economy, and the most interest rate sensitive part of the economy is real estate, if, if in the middle of that, our regulator eliminated the stress test, because people are have to qualify at mortgage rates that are 2% higher than the rates they're actually borrowing at. If they eliminated that stress test, that would be a giant amount of stimulus for the housing market and would completely undermine all of the work that the Bank of Canada's rate hikes have done to slow economic momentum and to bring inflation back down to 2%. So um, uh, that the, the, it's funny, There's the people call me and somebody, I was talking to someone today and they said, I hear the stress test is going to be eliminated early in the next year. I was like, well, I don't want to be too blunt, but there's not a snowball's chance in Hades that that's happening. Uh, and yeah, and, and again, as you say, Sajel, the, the stress test did its job. Um, people talking about a mortgage cliff need to remember that people with mortgage rates at two or 3% were qualified based on rates being five and a quarter percent. And when they're renewing, they're going to be renewing smaller mortgages than they got originally. So that stress test is the reason why we're not having the US style housing meltdown that they had when they weren't stress testing or even underwriting their borrowers and their rates went up back in 2008. 
By the way, one more comment on the mortgage cliff that people are talking about in 2025, 2026. The borrowers who are renewing at that point were all qualified at the stress test rate, which never got below 5%. And the other thing to remember, guys, we don't know what rates are going to be in 2025, 2026. With the way rates are falling now, they could be significantly lower at that point. So generally speaking, it's interesting to read articles that speculate on worst case scenarios, but they almost never materialize. The reality is we tend to get something in the middle. And yes, default rates could rise, but are they going to go from 0.16% to 16%? Um, might make for an interesting article and get a lot of clicks if you put that in your headline, but is it realistic? I don't think so. So let's talk about that, David, because there are a lot of headlines right now. There's a lot of news talking about the unaffordability crisis, but I also see a lot on proposed solutions. And, you know, we want to talk about this because, like you said, people read this. They're not sure what to make of it. So I want to get your thoughts. The first one I want to talk about is this federal government's announcement um, that they made on November 7th. So they said that they are going to unlock six parcels of federal land for development in places like Calgary and, and Edmonton and St. John's. Sounds positive. Any red flags? Anything we should be aware of? No, I don't want to knock that. That's progress in the right direction. We'll see if the municipalities get out of the way and remove some of the red tape that makes those projects multi-decade long projects. Because the problem with housing is we need cooperation at all three levels of government. The federal government releasing land is a step in the right direction. I won't knock that. Again, they've been asleep at the switch for too long. Uh, they should be doing everything they can. And I'll call that a step in the right direction. So what are the issues that you think could come up in terms of municipalities? Is it the NIMBY? You know, there's a lot of people who are like, yeah, I don't want a three-story complex in, in my neighborhood. Is, is that it? Or is it other things? No, that's, I mean, it's too expensive to build new houses and it takes too long. I think those are, those are two simple answers. And again, if you imagine the problem from a municipal politician's point of view, you're trying to get elected again by your neighbors and your neighbors don't want new housing built in their neighborhood. They don't want to see densification. And the people who will benefit from that densification aren't voting in the next election. They, they have yet to arrive. So from a self-preservation point of view, there's a lot of pressure on municipal politicians. They want to get reelected to satisfy their existing constituents who are against densification and who don't want I mean, construction next door for one thing, but also they worry about their home value, which in the end, by the way, is it, it, I think the stats prove that that's a bit of a misguided concern, but people respond emotionally when the topic comes up. And then we get into this problem of not in my backyard, the nimbyism you, you refer to. So that's the dilemma. I think what has to happen is that higher levels of government have to create benefits that offset those negative perceived costs. So if I'm your neighbor and you're my municipal politician and you're allowing development in my neighborhood means that we're going to get more funding for transit, we're going to have better schools, there's going to be benefits that I can see that will change the way I feel about the development happening, then I think that takes pressure off the municipal politicians. Uh, but that's really, I think, where a lot of the tension exists, is the fact that um, at the three levels of government, the the, the cost benefit is very different and aligning interests will, will, um, uh, will I think really go a long way to helping that problem. There's an old expression, um, show me the incentives and I'll show you the outcomes. Um, we need to change the, the way the incentives work and then I think we'll get different outcomes. I absolutely agree with that, right? There's always a sort of a cost benefit and everyone's sort of analyzing that. 
David, I want to go back to this immigration topic. You talked about it earlier. We've talked about it many times. I think you and I are probably on the same page in the fact that immigration is a good thing. We need it. The problem has been housing has not been aligned to immigration. And it feels, at least when you're reading some of the headlines in the newspapers, that it's starting to backfire on the federal government. Do you think that that's a key piece? And are you optimistic that we'll finally get some sort of alignment there? Am I optimistic? Well, uh, I'm an optimist by nature, Sajel, but I think uh, at this point, I don't know if optimistic, I, yeah, I hope so. We're an open, tolerant co- uh, country that has always welcomed immigrants. And it took a lot of bungling for our federal government to create an anti-immigration sentiment. And I say anti-immigration, it doesn't stem from cultural values as much as it does from practicality. We want people to be able to afford houses. It's very important for Canadian stone houses. We have some of the highest home ownership rates in the developed world. And um, that's being undermined by the fact that our immigration minister and our housing minister don't seem to know each other's names or ever talk to each other. And the federal government, again, they've been asleep at the switch for way too long and they've created a housing crisis. So I think definitely we've got to slow immigration until we come up with uh, better policies and solving the housing crisis is a long-term problem. It's not something we can fix by January. So definitely we've dug ourselves a pretty deep hole and it's going to be hard to dig our way out of it. And it's too bad that one of the costs of this housing crisis is changing attitudes towards immigration in a country that prides itself on being a welcoming country to, uh, to new arrivals. Well, this leads me to this point. And like you said, I'm in complete agreement with you. The government has taken, and I would say all levels of government, frankly, but they've taken a long time to get their act together. And I can say that the housing affordability crisis, obviously it, it got, it was exasperated during the pandemic, but the CMHC, like there's a lot of people who were warning the government long before this that, you know, supply is not keeping up with demand. And my personally, my concern is now they're kind of stepping up and they're starting to point fingers, um, including, I would say, you know, the banks, because we saw Finance Minister Christia Freeland come out and saying, you know, she's strongly encouraging banks to do the right thing, alleviate um, some of the costs and concerns that some homeowners that might be feeling some mortgage renewal pressures, that they should do that. And I want to get your thoughts on that. And especially like whether you think that's a dangerous game to start pointing fingers maybe at banks. Now, I'm not saying I, I think banks, they don't want homes on their books. And from what I see, they're they're trying to do the right things to alleviate some of the pressures. But But I want to get your thought on that. Well, I think the government's track record of what happens when they try to put their fingers on the scale of the free market is pretty well established. I cringed when they trotted the the heads of the grocery chains to Ottawa to talk to them about higher food prices and tried to put all sorts of demands on, on how they would conduct their business. Again, create the right incentives and you'll get the right outcomes. Telling banks what specifically how they should do their business, I think, is a mistake. Ultimately, the federal government needs to create the right incentives and they need to get into the their own way. And um, again, we live in a world where the federal government knows they've got a problem. They are in, in, in their defense. They don't have perfect control over solving the problem. They are but one player, uh, but they haven't done their part. They've done a, they've done a poor job. And um, in the realm of political theater, Minister Freeland knows that uh, getting in front of a microphone and saying things that will appeal to people who will be voting in the next election uh, is probably good politics. But is it, is it helpful? I don't think so. 
Which leads me to another point, going after short-term rentals. I want to get your thoughts there. You know, Airbnb, Verbo. And I was looking at a stat. I thought this was interesting. So Canada currently has 235,000 short-term rental listings on platforms like Airbnb and Verbo. I've seen sort of both sides of the argument. I think some people are saying, let's get rid of that or de-incentivize that because it'll free up supply. What are your thoughts? If we didn't have a housing crisis, then I think we should let the free market do what it does. Ultimately, I think, again, if we had enough houses, there'd be a place for the market to determine what percentage of housing stocks should be short versus long-term rentals. But we've dug ourselves a deep hole. We're in the middle of a housing crisis, and we've got to start coming up with short-term solutions to fix the mistakes that we've made to date. And if short-term rentals are taking up too much of the market and exacerbating an existing housing crisis? Should we put short-term measures in place to de-incentivize the creation of short-term rentals? I don't like that solution, but I think we're dealing with the best of the bad options at this point. And if it does help put more people in homes and create more housing stability at a time when we have a housing crisis, then ultimately, I think, again, I call that the best of the bad solutions that have been come up with, or, or one of the better bad solutions that we've come up with. And in future, if we become more, if we bring the housing market back into balance between supply and demand, then I wouldn't restrict it. I would let the market determine how different properties should be allocated. But right now, again, we don't have a, a perfect vacuum here and we're at a deep hole. So I think it, I think it'll alleviate some housing stress. And insofar as that's the case, I'm, I'm in favor of it. Are you seeing anything out there that might disencourage property investment? And uh, why I'm asking this is, you know, I'm online. I, I see a lot of comments and, you know, the greedy landlord and then, and then the bad renter. And what I'm seeing a lot more of now, David is saying, and I, and I can honestly, I can see both sides of the argument, but what I'm also seeing now is, is someone who is, you know, legitimately trying to sell their property or, or seeing damage and they can't, they can't do anything about it because so much of the laws are in the favor of renters. Right now, there's not a lot of incentive to buy a rental property when, for example, let's look at the simplest problem. The cost of financing has gone way up and rent control means that you're limited in what you can charge. I don't know who said it. There's an old expression. There are two ways to destroy a city. One is to bomb it and the other is to introduce rent control. It's too bad because rent control is a very populist policy when it hasn't been introduced when it is being introduced. But in reality, it hollows out a city it, it, and it's bad for renters. It increases the cost of renting. And we should see that now. I mean, the thing is, why are we still defending rent control? We've had it now. We've seen its effects. It's clearly bad for renters. It's costing them more money. It's reducing choice. And yet we still have the policy. So if the politicians, I mean, again, at a time like this, we need political courage and we're really short on that right now. So short of getting some political courage, uh, I, I, I guess is you say, I'm an optimist at heart. So uh, I guess I'll hold on to that optimism. And the reality is at some point, things will get bad enough that the political cost of not doing things will be higher than the political cost of showing some courage and doing things that you might have to explain to voters in sound bites that are longer than 10 seconds. But I guess if we want to be optimistic, are we getting closer to that point? I think we are. That's always good to know. And I guess I always say, watch this space. David, thanks for coming on. Now, before I let you go, this is new. I have my Strictly Money guests answer a rapid fire round of questions. <laughs> so I'm going to ask you three. Ready? All right. What is the best financial advice you've received? Don't spend everything you make. Sure. That's good. <laughs> and to the point, 
What is the worst financial advice you've received? Buy GameStop. <laughs> or oh, buy yeah. stocks you don't know anything about. Yeah, I have to agree with that one, right? Uh, FOMO's real and it, and it can lead to a disaster. Last one. If you could advocate for one policy change that would help housing affordability, what would it be? Oh boy, that's a great question. You got one. I know there's many, but. I would say introduce a universal stress test, set a certain level by which you test borrowers. And if mortgage rates go above that level, don't qualify people at contract rate plus. Qualify them at the actual rate they're borrowing at. So for example, you say the stress test rate is five and a quarter. If we're over that, you just qualify at the mortgage rate. If we're under that, you have to qualify at the five and a quarter. And have it the same for fixed and variable rate mortgages. Because a while back, there was a point where it was easier to qualify for a variable rate mortgage. And as a broker, I had to explain to borrowers, I'd love to give you a fixed rate mortgage, but you can't get the mortgage you need. The only way you can afford the mortgage you need is to take on a variable rate. And for those stretch borrowers, that is completely nonsensical. And our regulators made that happen. And ultimately, a universal stress test that is set at a certain level and universally applied, I think ultimately will create a more predictable environment. And I think ultimately will help affordability and most importantly, be appropriate for current circumstances. Okay, great advice. Thanks so much for your time, David. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Angel. David LaRock of Integrated Mortgage Planners. Well, that wraps up this edition of Strictly Money. On this show, we talk about all sorts of financial topics that could affect your health. Everything from housing affordability to investing to even estate planning and so much more. So if you want to hear expert advice so you can navigate your most important money decisions, make sure to tap on the subscribe button below. We'll see you back here next week. Until then, stay well, stay wise and stay wealthy.